0: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can
1: hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people
0: today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on
1: iTunes.
2: All right. Yeah, I know.
1: Hey, it's John here. The podcast hasn't technically started yet. It'll be long in a minute, I promise. But before we get going, I just wanted to basically ask you all for a favour. You're all very nice people. You've all been listening to us uh, enthusiastically, I hope. So, so now I want something in return. I'm not going to ask for money, don't worry. What I would like, though, is if you had five minutes to give us a nice review on iTunes and to tell your friends, because we'd like to get more people listening to this and we think you're the best people to help us do that. So go on, be nice, do us a favour. Anyway, that's the public service announcement over... I now return you to your normal podcast service. This is a
0: Manhattan-bound B-Express train.
3: The next stop is Grand
4: Street. Mind the gap. Hello and welcome to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. I'm Barbara.
2: And I'm John. And this
1: week we're talking about how it all fits together.
2: People talk about Los Angeles, you know, they always refer to the movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit as sort of the original sin of Los Angeles is to have been built around the car. The
3: mayor has a a lot of power in New York compared with London Um, and it's got a department of transport that runs all the transport in in the boroughs. You know, there aren't any boroughs running transport um, which you've got 32 in London.
2: The streetcars closed the last red car in Los Angeles ran between Los Angeles and Long Beach in, I want to say, 1963.
1: So, as I've mentioned before, I think I... I grew up in an outer suburb of London in, in in what we know as Zone Six, which is a particularly uh, sexy and attractive zone in the transport map. But it basically means I grew up like you know ten, twelve, fifteen miles out of town in in a place that is administratively it's London. It's you get the mayor, you've got the Metropolitan Police, you've got London Transport, but people don't like to think of it as London. Like you ask a lot of the people in in Bromford where I grew up. Where they live, they they won't say London. They would probably say Essex, which is the the county it used to be part of, which is you know has a very strong identity of its own. um And this strikes me as this this issue of where cities end and and their hinterland begins strikes me as kind. Of, it's one of the things we talk about quite a lot because human beings are obsessed with with identity and definitions. Basically, I mean Barbara, you grew up uh, in a sort of commuter town, like maybe eighty miles from London. As someone who wasn't a Londoner and now is, where does London begin?
4: I think about Zone Three, maybe. <laughs> a push. I think. I mean, it's impossible to talk about this without talking about the Tube map if you don't know much about London, which I didn't. Um, so I would just go in. I'd go to the central, central bit. I would think that the edge of Zone Three looked very far out, and that was kind of as far as it went. Okay, so let's
1: um, let's let's try a couple of places. Is uh, is Hammersmith in London? Y- yes. Okay, is, is Richmond. It's got a nice park, it's got some deer in it.
4: No, see, I think Richmond is quite self contained as like another town, especially if you haven't gone there now. It kind of feels like you're getting off the train in somewhere else. Clapham's a bit, sorry, Clapham Junction is a bit like that as well.
1: Clapham Junction's like five minutes away. You're like, God, you're a real sort of hardliner on this. You don't, you, you clearly, you're like a London purist.
4: Yeah, I think, well, also just because if places seem to be, because what, I mean, what you were saying just now is it's not actually always that people want to be part of central London, that places that do have their own identity and their own sort of centre, um, you kind of want to give them credit for that in a way and not just say they're sort of an edge of another place.
1: Mm. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's, that's true, but it, it doesn't seem universally true. So it's, mm. I grew up in, in Romford, which has a very strong idea of an Essex identity, and so probably doesn't think of itself as London. If you cross the Thames, there's the Kentish suburbs like Bexley and Bromley that I think feel the same or like you go southwest, I used to work for a website called, called Londonist, um, and we would get a lot of angry comments whenever we wrote about Kingston upon Thames, because someone from Kingston upon Thames would just leave sarky comments going, it's actually in Surrey, you know?
4: <laughs> which is irrelevant, really, the county yeah, thing, so but people up. do fixate on it. Yeah. yeah,
1: but if you go to northwest London, if you go to places like, I don't know, Uxbridge or Harrow or Ryslip, which are just as far out, um, people there, I think, do identify with London, and partly I think that's probably because it's it used to be in a county called Middlesex, which isn't there anymore. It's just It just has been subsumed by London. Mm-hmm. But partly also I think it's because those areas all have the tube.
4: Yeah. I mean, Axbridge is the end of the line, isn't it? I remember mm. once um, coming to London without knowing much about London and um, agreeing to go back to my friend's house for a bit before going back to Winchester, getting on the tube getting to Uxbridge realising it took me longer than it would have taken me to get back home in the first place um which is when I I was like oh right the tube does go quite a long way okay
1: okay let's 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 stop obsessing about London let's move on you you grew up in in Winchester yeah is is Winchester it's, it's it's a commuter town for London is it is it in any way London is it is it part of somewhere else what is it I
4: think so people it's closest big city is Southampton which is interesting because it's very very different to Southampton in a lot of ways it's very kind of wealthy and I think its qualities its demographic qualities come basically from its proximity to London rather than to Southampton uh, because Southampton is um, a great city but it has all kinds of problems and has quite a high crime rate, quite difficult kind of other social factors. So I think there is an interesting effect whereby if you think of each of those, if Winchester and Southampton as having a gravity, like a planet, and obviously Southampton's much bigger, um, it's kind of a huge, bustling city, and yet people who are closer to Southampton on the map will often say, oh, I'm from Winchester, <laughs> which for not a very big town slash city is questionable, which, which it is it's quite funny, I suppose. It's, it's a similar effect to... Romford versus London.
1: Mm. Jim Smith, who writes for city metric sometime he did a piece on how Boris Johnson was actually a Saturday Night Live actor. If you saw that one, um, and I can say this because I know he doesn't listen to the podcast, but he um, he claims that the village you grew up in is part of Stratford upon Avon. But uh, if you look on the map, it's basically a suburb of Redditch, which in terms is yeah. a suburb of Birmingham, and like it's miles from Stratford upon Avon. Yeah. But because of a combination of county boundaries and, and, and snobbishness, I think it's, it's, it's just cooler to be associated with Shakespeare's birthplace than Redditch. <laughs> but I mean, I, I obsess about this because I, I, I'm I I'm a slightly geeky man who likes drawing lines on maps and has somehow made a career out of it. Um, but I think this stuff can actually have a real impact on, on how we govern our cities and, how, and what they're like. So if you look at what's going on in paris at the moment paris is a great example of a city which historically had a very tightly boundary it's like the equivalent of zones one and two in london yep so if you directly compare the populations of paris and london paris looks tiny because you're really only counting the center but it is surrounded by all these other places that are you know functionally they're part of paris they just they've just been managed independently so it's kind of it's trying to move away from that kind of uh, better integrate them
3: mm-hmm.
1: and it's creating this uh, the, the metropole de grand paris which is kind of like a sort of equivalent to greater london because not having had that structure a lot of these places are very cut off in terms of transport they've not but their economic development has been ignored and you kind of end up with with um the banlieue.
4: yeah but equally i think you can see that if you are a relatively fragmented bit that really is just on the edge of the thing that is paris you wouldn't necessarily get that identity of your own that you wouldn't kind of rally around your particular area and so you kind of lose that sense of identity maybe
1: you're saying these some of these places will end up sort of neither here nor there they don't get to be part of of Paris but at the same time they don't have the kind of proud Winchester style independence. exactly <laughs>
4: yeah um, um, Winchester soon to secede from um, um,
1: I think you can see this stuff at work elsewhere in in um, England as well actually where Um, for for those who who aren't familiar with the exciting ins and outs of our our devolution debate, most of the other major cities in England are kind of en route to trying to create uh, what are called city regions so sort of like Greater London, uh, Greater Manchester is quite a long way along this path but Manchester is easy because all the outer boroughs have kind of long accepted that their fortunes Mm -hmm. are tied up with, with the success of Manchester and that's not true of all these places so if you look at The the, the West Midlands deal, which is the Birmingham, Wolverhampton, Coventry. I think a lot of people were surprised that that came through at all because uh, Wolverhampton and Coventry particularly are so sort of vehement that they're not part of a greater Birmingham. They are their own independent cities. So um, uh, our our mates at the Centre for Cities, um, who who are our data partner, um, they produce a database looking at all British uh, figures on British cities and they get endless angry emails from Wolverhampton because the system they use is counts it as part of Birmingham and Wolverhampton isn't having any of it. So so it, it was a bit of a surprise that that deal was happening at all. And in other places, mm. similar deals are, are not happening. Like there was meant to be a sort of Leeds-Bradford-Wakefield kind of region and that's just not happened because of the endless rows about where the boundary is and whether these places are really part of Greater Leeds.
4: Yeah, it does really matter to people, which is... Almost surprising, I suppose, but we all do it. I mean, we all want want some say of where people say that we're from, where we live.
1: I think it's just it's much easier to get passionate about identity than it is about functional economic geography. Geographies. Yeah. yeah, it's just not very sexy. I mean, I find it interesting, but I, as we've often discussed, am, am pretty weird. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think this? How, how do you think this is a, a problem they get internationally?
4: Yeah, I think I think it's, it's just. It's just part and parcel of living in a city that you do identify with. I mean, I'm not sure that people in very rural areas identify strongly with the the name given to the big swathe of empty land mm. where they live.
1: We, uh, I think that's that's the, so the Chinese system. They are basically imposing these structures and saying, OK, this huge area is is a city called I don't know, Shanghai or whatever but actually a lot of it is not something we would recognize as a city yet it is just the land on which they're expecting to build commuter towns for Shanghai effectively
4: but equally other bits of all cities in china in fact kind of bleed into each other without any kind of obvious boundary um i think as as urban areas get bigger and bigger and kind of jump onto each other like that It'll be interesting to see what happens.
1: So there's there's a word for that, isn't it? a megalopolis, <laughs> which which is definitely a word. Despite yeah. What...
4: Well, I I learnt this in geography when I was about seven or something, and I was really excited by this concept of all these cities, kind of. Sprawling into each other and eventually having a world that was just covered in buildings. Um, but I went home and was told by my mum very sternly that it, in fact was not a word. Yeah. Fact, <laughs> um, if, if Barbara's so mum is listening, um,
1: I can assure you it definitely is a word. <sighs> and you, can, you can tell I'm right because really I'm that. the editor of citymetric.com. So. <laughs> but I mean, there are, there are other megalopathies out there. I think um, there's, have you heard of the blue banana? It's one of my favourite economic I don't geography think so, terms. No. The, the blue banana is an EU idea that basically there is a sort of West European urban zone that kind of stretches all the way from basically Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds up in the north of England down through most of England jumps across the Channel through Belgium and the Netherlands and down through Western Germany so it comes to rest um, somewhere around, around Rome basically and if you look at it it is... A, a, a huge percentage of Europe's population is concentrated in that kind of arc. They call it a blue bigs of Europe and banana because it's a bit wibbly. But the other one is the the US Northeast Megalopolis or, or Boss Wash, <laughs> which again is just an enormous chunk of the US population in, in you know Boston, New York, uh, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington that all kind of bleed into each other mm-hmm. and you can't necessarily sort of draw a line down the middle of, uh, I don't know, Trenton, New Jersey and say this side is the commuter zone for New York and this side is the commuter zone for Philadelphia. Because, you know, people in Philadelphia commute to New York now. You know, you get, it's described as the sixth borough sometimes, probably mostly by real estate agents in Philadelphia, I suspect. But nonetheless, that is theoretically possible as something you can do.
4: Yeah, and you sort of wonder, will those individual identities continue or not? I mean, I suppose that it's whether you think the centre of those cities does have enough draw that it kind of
3: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
4: they will keep themselves as these separate entities
1: hmm. i think places that start with a strong identity are likely to to keep it mm-hmm. Um, there's places that don't have that to start with it's more likely to fade away but we we're speculating a little bit. It, it strikes me that really what we're talking about here is, is sort of integration of different places into, it's, you know, integration of many things into one big thing, and that can be pretty hard to do, and not not just for places but for institutions.
3: This is a Brooklyn-bound A Express train. The next stop is Dykeman Street. This is a 125th Street bound A express train. The next stop is 59th Street, Columbus Circle. Hi, uh, I'm Tim Friendly uh, from Applied Wayfinding, and we uh, design city
1: information systems. So, one of the questions that presumably comes up quite a lot when designing city information systems is that of integration integration between different uh, political bodies, the integration between different modes of transport. I mean, how does that kind of affect your work?
3: Uh, it's a really good question because you can't really do anything unless the the city um, is working together in some form. And uh, you've just got, to, you've, first of all, you've got to understand how cities are structured. We've worked with lots of cities. We've found similar ways in which they're structured. They're called different things. They might be called boroughs, they might be called transport authorities, they might they might have business improvement districts but the really what you've got is, quite rightly, you've got this distributed I'm running certain services and you're running those services and there's places where we cross over. Um, so I think the ways the cities are structured is, is really, it's naturally it's reaching a balance, which is correct. When it comes to movement, there's a problem because what you've got when you're moving is that actually people want it all to fit together they're desperate to just jump off the bus and get on the, the tram um, or jump off the tram and and walk to where they want to find or where do they park their bike uh, and then you know or use the bike hire system or whatever and they, they're not interested in all these different organizations that are providing the services they just want them to fit together so you've you've got these two opposing kind of like structures so i think there's a tendency of
1: to to speak of a city like New York as if it's, you know, a monolithic thing as you say, you know, New York is doing this to its transport network but really it's not one entity it's more like a a collection of cats tied together in a bag constantly sort of fighting each other Uh,
3: uh, wrapped wrapped around with legacy of like how it got created and... you know, it, it doesn't quite fit together. Um, so
1: let's 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 stick with New York. I mean, you you guys have worked there. What what are the kind of different bodies that are in play in terms of trying to create a, a functioning city transport system there, and how do they,
3: how well do they interrelate? Well, their, their transport system's totally a representative of legacy. Of you've got the the subway system, which is run by the MTA. You've got the mayor has a, a lot of power in New York compared with London, um, and it's got a Department of Transport that runs all the transport in, in the boroughs. You know, there aren't any boroughs running transport, um, which you've got 32 in London. So you've got a very strong Department of Transport, but yet the Department of Transport only has a, a, a kind of like a relationship with the MTA. Um, the MTA, and then you've got PATH, and then you've got other providers Dotted around. The,
1: the, the subway yeah. that is run jointly with the New Jersey authorities. I
3: think. Yeah, it's basically the New Jersey commuter lines that come into Manhattan. <laughs> um, uh, why that isn't all part of an MTA um, transport network kind of would make sense, I think. But um, uh, that in there lies a lot of politics. Um, and they do okay. Try, there's lot, lots of handoffs between them. And they're trying to get there. Um, but you've got to then contrast that with look what happened in um, uh, sorry to bring it back to London but look what happened in London when you put the underground together with the buses and then the investment that the bus team did on integrating information as you come out of the tube station and which bus to get and and the ridership that's increased by, by doing that kind of thing it's a connected it's it's a fundamentally connected system. And we see from the people's perspective that is very much what people find useful and completely improves um usefulness uh, use, use ridership.
1: So, so that's the prize here, it's that people can kinda of get in the bus, switch to a tube, switch to a train from that and it kinda of feels not seamless but like you know the, the systems are meant to work together i'm assuming that you know city authorities in new york all, obviously they want everyone to be able to sort of commute very easily from one side of the city to the other so they're presumably working together harmoniously to
3: achieve that goal presumably <laughs> <laughs> um no, the thing is is that any organization like that has a remit and, and their remit is often, even if they don't want it to be, it's limited to their area and what they're doing. And that's why a bigger organisation, a bigger a bigger brief, a bigger objective actually is needed. And you, you can do that by getting everybody to work together. But the best way in the end is going to be actually making them all run together. Um, so we're working in Toronto. There's 10 different transport authorities, loads of legacy. And they kind of have a, a, a functional, minimal functional handoff between each other. And we did a piece of research and we sent one um, lady, a uh, young lady, she's about 20, and we sent her on a journey. On the Google Transit, it was going to take her three and a half hours and use four different transport systems. Um, it actually took her 11 and a half hours. Ow. And she didn't make it. <laughs> and the services were not working. It wasn't the, 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 the trains and the buses weren't failing. It wasn't blocked. Um, sorry. When you got, say she
1: didn't make it, you mean she just ran out of time. She wasn't like eaten by a
3: bear. Or it something, was dark and late, and her mother went to pick her up in the car because she just was upset. And eleven and a half hours trying to get back because we sent her somewhere and then said then get back this way, and it should have taken her three and a half hours according to the journey planner. And why why was it eleven and a half hours? Well, we didn't tell her how to do it, so this was working with a, a reasonable normal, um, reasonably intelligent Torontonian um, in her own city. But yet, Transport was she'd never travelled on because a place that she'd never been to. What, typical journey she might want to do to see a friend. Um, and so, for example, will give you one little example. So she knew she had to get a bus from... She had to get off at this train station and catch a bus to do the next leg of the journey. And at that station, we didn't know it because we didn't plan a bad journey we just said try that and come back we actually did this in a number of people and found all sorts of results and what she did is that she got off the train where she thought she should and actually at that train station there were two stations named two different things the bus people called the station one thing and the train people called the station another thing (laughs) and yet it was the same station but she didn't realize that so she didn't get off at there because she was looking for the bus name because that on her journey planner was where she was going from so she kept on the train line all the way to the end thinking well i will get off when i get here and she didn't so then she went back and then she had to find so she wasted two hours doing that Hmm. so that's the confusion the uh, an individual's experience that's how it how it feels and that i think is the bit that's where we're bothered about i mean we
1: came in by talking about institutions working together um, is, is is the need for that going to get superseded by things like you know, apps like Citi, City Mapper? Is an incredibly good app that you can just kind of you just tell it where you want to go, and it will give you multiple options. And sort of it almost sort of overloads you with information that you're probably not going to need about you know which where to stand on the platform or whatever. Um, can can that kind of technology plug this gap without massive institutional upheaval?
3: Um yes, and no, yes, those things, and it's not just going to be city mapper it's going to be all sorts of services that are going to come out um that are going to give you this information um but it's what it needs to happen is the digital has got to fit with the physical it's got to be connected on the ground um for example, another station in Toronto um has got three different bus services it's got three different stations, and how do you w- find your way from one to another is hard work. <laughs> And you arrive at one and think you can get on a bus and you walk around looking for that bus and it doesn't exist at that part of the station. Now, CityMapper and Google Transit and and, and not have not got that level of granularity to help that connection. And maybe they could in the future, but that is going to require integration with those organisations. So these organisations have got a part to play. And they either do one of two things. They either find a kind of like a harmonised way to do things and a, and a relationship that's going to do it or they need to be much more of the same organisation. Thank you, Tim. This is a Euclid Avenue-bound F train via the A line. The next stop is Nostrand Avenue. This is a Brooklyn-bound F train via the B line. The next stop is Grand Street.
4: Now we're moving on to the portion of the show where someone tells us about their city. So this week, we're hearing from one of our writers about his city, which has had its own problems really in terms of integrating different areas, different identities into one city unit.
2: Okay, so I'm Drew Reed. I have been contributing the city metric for almost two years now. I'm originally from Los Angeles, and it might seem a bit ironic, but I think that that actually to me is what drove me towards... The, the idea of studying cities and urban planning, urban, you know, urban issues in general. Los Angeles seems sort of like the anti-city. The, you know, the city of sprawl, the city, you know, who people don't like cities move to. People talk about Los Angeles, you know, they always refer to the movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit as sort of the original sin of Los Angeles is to have been built around the car. Where I came from, in, within greater LA, I'm not from LA proper, um, I'm from Long Beach, which, I mean, I think f- to give people an idea, I sort of I- I think Long Beach is a little bit like the New Jersey of Los Angeles. You know, it's, you know, outside of the sort of area in which, you know, the, the movers and the shakers and the film industry and, uh, you know, other important industries do things closer to the center, as it were, of the city. It's one of the few areas in LA that is a, a, a little bit more dense. It's older. You can still sort of see, you know, the traces of the streetcar era and that there was this very brief but I think still somewhat important time. Most of the area was farmland at the time, but there there were these very small pockets that did, you know, operate like conventional cities and one of them was Long Beach. There was a brief time when the area that we call Downtown LA, which now has kind of been disfigured almost but it did work as you know, a, you know a functional, I'd say small to maybe mid-sized city within the context of America at the time. And then what happened was there was a boom in growth in Los Angeles, and that was from the streetcars. And I believe there was a bill in the 1920s for the city to take over at the, the time the private uh, streetcar and uh, you know, interurban, you know, sort of more long-distance rail lines, and that didn't pass. Uh, in addition, you know, the, the, the streetcar companies were sort of saddled with this extra burden that they had to, in addition to paying all their operating costs and things like that, they had to pay for the upkeep of every road that a streetcar line went down. So really pretty early on, you had this kind of original, you know, orientation toward, you know, you know walkability, I guess, streetcars, mass transit, but that quickly shifted towards the car as this, you know, new modern way of life that was going to, you know, rid us of our ills in this area. And, you know, there was definitely this perception of, you know, this central area of Los Angeles, you know, being a den of vice and that sort of thing. So, I mean, even before the mass suburbanization of the 40s and 50s in in the United States, there was really this sort of urge to spread out from the area that had been or or urbanized initially. You know, there was a very strong will at the local level. And, you know, when the, the federal funding came in, With all these various levels of government funding towards the car, what you had happen was these massive areas of land outside of the center of town went from being farms straight to being low-density tract housing type of developments. You know, you have the San Fernando Valley, uh, you know, which became known as uh, America's suburb. So these massive areas that weren't thought of as urban at all all of a sudden became urban. You know, it was a massive upheaval in terms of just the logic of the city it gives los angeles you know what it's known for today which is low density sprawl the diffusion i would say of the areas that are recognized as sort of where people do business where art and culture happen the development the construction of the freeways created this sort of logic to the city where you know people's way of life I guess is not based on okay I'm gonna live outside the city and commute in but you know I'm gonna have my house in an area that you know suits me you know it's sort of more of a lifestyle choice rather than a practical you know calculation based on translation and housing costs I would say so find an area you know finding a neighborhood is sort of more like finding a a nice a nice suit or a nice pair of clothes or something it it's more (laughs) to fit your lifestyle than it is to you know practical calculation
1: Los Angeles, I understand, is now is now trying to build a couple of light rail lines and so on. It's trying to sort of retrofit a, a more traditional rapid transit network onto the city. Is that uh, ever going to be possible in a city this big and this sprawling and this, this low density? Can you ever sort of flip it from being a car-based city to a, a rail-based city?
2: Um, well, I would say actually I am maybe more optimistic than most in this case there was a very, you know, a brief time, but an important time in the city's history in which, you know, the the logic of the development of the city was sort of, you know, based on the the logic of the streetcar. And that held true for the areas that were urbanized at the time, but the areas that weren't, you know, were completely sort of centered around the car because that was the new thing. Why are we going to worry about streetcars? So these areas in which you had the streetcars running they still maintain that sort of more urban character. When I was a kid, we grew up you know, in, in an area of Long Beach that was I mean, just a little under a mile from what's called downtown Long Beach, such as it is. We had a corner store that was a block from our house, and every day when we wanted groceries, we'd go out and uh, you know, get them there. And I never thought that was a big deal, but then you know, I would sort of later come to realize in a city like Los Angeles, you know, most people don't do that. Most people get in their car and drive you know, a mile, two miles to a grocery store. So, but with the future of you know a rail-based transportation system, I think is really you know based in the past of the rail-based transportation system. I did a piece, you know, a little plug here from a piece I did. This is a little over a year ago now, based on some really great re- research from I think a team at UCLA. They looked at the densities of areas that had been built near streetcar um, stations. And how that density had increased over time. And even after the streetcar shut down, the, the density increased. So that, I think in itself, in those areas where there were streetcar stations, I think can, if, if they pull it off right, I think can serve to be, uh, to sort of resurrect, you know, another, it's not going to be the same system, but another kind of rail system. Because, you know, in order for rail to work, there needs to be density. But there are places where that, that is the case. And I think we already sort of have the roots of that in the new system they built. The the streetcars closed the last, uh, I think, um, red car in Los Angeles, uh, ran between Los Angeles and Long Beach in, I want to say, 1963. And then the first line to reopen in Los Angeles was was the same line. So they had left this sort of right-of-way of of the train line Mm. unused. And so, you know, thankfully that no one built on it. So they were able to sort of resurrect that one line and that line now is sort of, I, I believe in the beginning, you know, sort of had a tepid reaction, but it's been there now 20, 25 years and it has built a ridership base. It's definitely, I mean, I would say that, you know, it's still very segregated, I would say, from certain areas of, or certain ways of life, I should say, of Los Angeles. I mean, there are people who ride the, the blue line, which is the line that opened between Long Beach and Los Angeles every day. There are other people who don't even know it exists in Los Angeles you know it's slowly building up and i think if it has a future it is in the areas that kind of were created before this massive urbanization and you know the massive sprawl because once you have the logic put in place that's around you know a streetcar more mass transit oriented development you know it's it, you know that that stays in place out of sort of i guess economic necessity you know you know in london paris new york you know you can get from anywhere to anywhere on 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 mass transit the problem with Los Angeles is where are those anywheres I mean there are still areas I mean central Los Angeles is still a sizable part of the city the problem is when you say where is anywhere in Los Angeles where are the areas that matter to people in Los Angeles I don't know Beverly Hills the Hollywood Hills where are the areas that really grab people's imagination you know those areas are not near the transit lines I think it reminds me of that sort of the classic song about, you know, nobody walks in L.A. from the 80s, where they say, uh, you know, the, the actual lyric isn't nobody walks in L.A., it's only a nobody walks in L.A. So, <laughs> you know, you have these areas of L.A. that, you know, are very walkable, but I think that, you know, that's really what separates Los Angeles from, you know, and that's sort of the nuance that I'm trying to get at, you know, when you talk about Los Angeles as a car city. It's a car city in the sense that the places that matter to people are only accessible by cars. I mean, in New York, where do people want to go? I don't know. You know, Midtown, Broadway, uh, Times Square. In Los Angeles, you know, people want to go see Charlie Sheen's house or something. You know, you're not going to get there on a the subway or on a bus.
4: you'd like to contribute your thoughts on your city for this feature, you can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook or by email.
1: So for our map of the week this week, I think it's about time we talked about probably my, my greatest achievement in, in journalism and cartography and indeed life, I, I fear. I'm never going to top this, which was the, uh, the Friday afternoon back in those halcyon days of April 2015 where I just decided to drop a map of Paris on London to compare the size. So we kind of, we talked about this a bit earlier. Paris proper is, is actually pretty small compared to London. I mean, if you kind of, you, it, it took me ages to line up the two sizes, by the way. I don't know, wine, but there's quite a lot of admin. and, and using multi, Yeah, using multiplication tables here. Um, but yeah, Paris proper, if you kind of drop it on London, it stretches from sort of, what's that, West Kensington down to Bermondsey or Rotherhithe or something. It's actually, it, it's basically just central London, isn't it? It's like, it's yeah. much, much smaller.
4: It does make a mockery, really, of these comparisons people make of city size based on the number of people because they're like, well, Paris has just decided that, that that's the relevant bit. But I think if you were to make it up from scratch now, that's never where you would draw the boundary. No. As, I mean, and they are redrawing the boundary, yeah. so it's the proof is in the pudding.
1: But, but yeah, I mean, this is this is something that, that is an issue for a lot of cities. So, like, New, New York is a, a much bigger official geography than Paris of the five boroughs, but it's still ever so slightly arbitrary and that like you know the bronx is in westchester county is out um the you know the, the the urban area on long island beyond brooklyn and queens is out staten island vexingly is in despite the fact it's there's quite a lot of water between staten island and 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 the rest of new york and actually if you want to go by road between the two you have to go via New Jersey it's just really weird and arbitrary but they they should sort it out is basically what I'm saying
4: well geography isn't on their side and they are (laughs) a peninsula
1: (laughs) yeah but I'm just saying you you could do it better (laughs) You've been listening to Skylines, the Citymetric podcast. It was presented by John Elledge and Barbara Speed and produced by Royel Brown. Our theme music is Dust from the Stars by Charlie Charles. You also heard The Weather by Destinazione Altrove Trove and Embryonic Waves, composed by Matthew Reitzel. All music in the show is licensed under Creative Commons. You can find Skylines every two weeks on Acast and on iTunes, where you'll also find two more shows by our excellent colleagues, Seriously and the New Statesman podcast. In the meantime, you can find all the stories about cities, maps and geography you could possibly want on our website, citymetric.com. You can also talk to us on Twitter and on Facebook, where there's a pretty good chance we'll talk back. And if you wanted to leave a review to tell your friends how lovely we are, well, we'd very much appreciate that. Thanks for
0: listening. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand
4: Street. Mind the Gap.
0: 지하 서울역입니다. 내리실 문은 오른쪽입니다. 명동, 영국이나